Over to you, Mark. It's very relevant content about critical control. So thanks for joining us today. Yes, thank you so much, uh, Sarah. It's, a, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, this, is, this is certainly a topic that is very close to my heart. This is where we can certainly as professionals really have quite a strong impact in what we do in the lives of people. And I thought it was just before we, we get into the presentation, uh, just to, to give you a bit of an idea of, of Centres and who, who we are. So effectively, we are a, a safety management consulting firm. Um, we support organisations to shift culture and leadership capability in high-risk organisations, uh, particularly those with the potential for fatality. Uh, we, we operate in over 400, uh, we've, we've worked with over 400 uh, organisations, uh, 35 countries. We've uh, delivered programs to over 180,000 uh, people, uh, lots, of, lots of experience. And we're, we have a strong foundation of, of research and, uh, and have a, a dedicated team of organisational psychologists uh, supporting the work that we do. Uh, so ultimately, uh, you know, our, our mission uh, is to change the lives of individuals and organisations uh, for the better every day. Uh, and our approach is really to, to, to drive personal responsibility and accountability uh, for safety in the workplace um, and by really assisting uh, individuals to understand why safety should matter to them in the first place. And this is very relevant in terms of, of critical risk management, particularly where our systems can be quite often uh, very human centric or, or, or um, you know, a lot of the variability is related to the, the, the humans within the system which we'll talk a little bit more to uh, shortly. So as far as agenda, um, these are the, the main areas that we're going to talk to today. So, so critical control insurance, what it is, why it's important, uh, how we can do it, uh, the psychology of risk. So this is, this is really to get a good understanding of the human, human component. And, and certainly uh, the next step is, is to unpack the, the role of the leader as well uh, in building the culture and the systems uh, for uh, effective critical control assurance. And uh, then ultimately we want to be able to leave you with some practical tips of, of how to move forward. We'll also have some time at the end uh, where you can ask some questions uh, and uh, you know, uh, time permitting, we'll, we'll be able to answer those for you. So I think as a good starting point, it's, it's probably good to, to start with some terms of reference. Um, so what we're really talking about here is, you know, in terms of critical risk is where there's a potential for a serious injury or fatality to occur. The critical risks are, are really the unwanted events that have the biggest potential to cause serious injury or fatality in our workplace, what we call a SIF event. I think these, these there are different uh, terminologies, but I just want to unpack that acronym as uh, and, and in the safety profession, we, we love these things, but uh, the SIF is really a serious injury or fatality event. Uh, and in reality, these events are often rare. Um, but the, the, the issue here is that because they're rare, sometimes they, they're not highly focused on, but the consequences when they do occur are always high uh, to people and, and organizations, uh, hence why this is an important topic. Um, so critical risk management in general is, is, is defined as a system or a systematic approach to, and, in, and it's integrated across multiple systems uh, to ensure critical risks are known, they're in place, and they're effective. So for the purpose of eliminating, reducing potential for events in our organization, we need to have things called critical controls, 
And the, the definition of critical control is, is essentially anything that is considered crucial. So if you were to remove it, would uh, increase the risk to an intolerable level. So it, 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 it uh, potentially results in, uh, could be seen as our last line of defense, but um, the, they, they're there really to either prevent or mitigate um, the potential for uh, these significant events to occur. Um, some of the activities that you probably uh, may be aware of, um, certainly uh, with MIOSH and the, the framework that, that is in place uh, or available to you, you can see that things like risk registers and bow ties and the like are, are often part of that um, planning stage, uh, but the, it's continuous learning that we would want to see through that process. But also uh, our reporting systems uh, often capture things like any hit data and, and incident data that that should ultimately feed back as a, as a system should. Uh, so, so essentially, we, we, this, is, this is our main focus for today, uh, is, this, is, is not only just the, the system itself, but understanding how the human relates to this and what are the artifacts within the, the organization that help us promote uh, critical control insurance. So we thought, um, you know, before we, we, we go through in detail the, the, the structure of critical control assurance, a, a foundational understanding of, of safety culture and the components of a safety culture are really, really essential for us to, um, to understand what we're looking at in terms of, of uh, critical control assurance. The, the, the key elements of a safety culture, you can see here are the practices. So quite often we, we you know, have the procedures and the, the um, the systems and tools in, in our environment to control the practices. Uh, we have environmental controls, and often these are the hard controls that we, we have out in the environment. So things like guarding and uh, even PPE to, to a point. Uh, then we have the person factor. And, and as I'm sure many of you know, the person factor is often the, the piece that uh, is most uh, uh, associated, if you will, to uh, events occurring in our, our environment or near hits and, and, and errors. Um, and what's particularly important here is that, you know, with 96% of, of, of people being associated with, uh, you know, incidents in the workplace, um, we often focus on the practices and the environment quite heavily. And often the people, the person component um, is under, under uh, review. What we consider here is, you know, and, and in the context of today's uh, webinar, uh, being around operational leadership in particular, we consider that leadership surrounds this model. It is effectively the glue that holds these components together um, through what we pay attention to, the, the systems and processes we use, and certainly our attitudes and how we uh, communicate a safety culture, particularly what's important in the workplace and how work's done. So to break it down uh, a little bit further, uh, we thought it would be useful to, uh, to look at how these particular elements of the safety culture uh, look like in terms of critical risk management. The first one, you know, th these are a, a couple of areas that, that are common to uh, critical risk management is risk assessment tools. So there might be risk registers, bow ties and the like, uh, might be permitting systems and safe work methods and even, even uh, performance standards and the like that, that define how work uh, should be done. Uh, we also have incident classification systems that help us to identify where we should put our attention in terms of 
investigation practices and certainly actions and risk reduction actions. Uh, and we also have our safety management system in general, which is you know, the, the combination of, of processes and procedures that they come together to help us to uh, perform safe work. But inherent within this, we often, if we're looking at in incidents on their own, we, quite, we quite often can't see the detailed themes or the underlying story that, that uh, our data tells us. So having good data analysis process to detect um, um, sort of the, the, the hot spots that, that um, you know, aren't detected when you're just looking at one individual event are particularly important. So that's sort of stepping back and looking deep. Uh, we also would, uh, would have, and many, many companies do have, uh, field interactions and, and verification processes. So these can be informal interactions with the workplace when we're looking wide, uh, but it can also be very, very focused, detailed or deep dives into uh, particular critical controls. So that's just a number of, of uh, practices out there. There, there. there are many more that we can, we can include in here. Uh, in terms of the environment, the, the main areas there are around engineering and design to eliminate and mitigate risk. So uh, quite often the hard controls, mop outs, those sorts of areas, um, guarding, uh, what have you. Uh, PPE is also included in that, that area. We have the person, as we mentioned, this is, this is quite often considered the variable. Uh, because you know the people often design the practices and and the environmental controls, and they're also required to put those controls in place and and maintain them to to a high standard. Uh, what's particularly important for us in in terms of our control assurances is really the the piece around the attitude of, of people and uh, how they work towards implementing critical controls and and uh, ensuring that they uh, remain effective. What we also find is that part of, part of this, this attitude um, around critical risk and, and assurance is our willingness and the ability to actually verify the controls. So that's underpinned by some knowledge, but also the, the desire, the drive to go and check and verify. Uh, willingness to stop work, at, certainly at the, at the operational level, um, given the, the multiple pressures that can be in the environment, the ability to stop work, but also to put, uh, I guess, uh, controls in place that, or processes in place that allow us to actually start work with an underpinning of, of good, good uh, control assurance. As we mentioned, what ties this all together is the leadership component. And uh, so what we really want to bring into, into our focus today is that ability to identify potential events as they come through. And, quite a, a large portion uh, actually go undetected. We'll talk through that a little bit later. Um, the, the confidence that we have to actually go and supervise high-risk work, uh, to go and, go and actually ask the right questions and look deeply uh, to verify those critical controls. Sometimes we, 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 we might have uh, frames around this where we say, oh, well, you know, it's, that's the operation, that's the, the, the supervisor's job or the workers, but ultimately uh, an understanding of, of the psychology of risk uh, it is important for us to get out there as well and and uh, and provide feedback and look at how works work is getting done. So willingness to share learnings is also uh, an important part. And and uh, so when we're actually going out and doing our observations in life, is we're looking for the workarounds that are, that are occurring that don't perhaps don't match to our procedures or the way we expect things being done. Our workers imagine, if you will, 
uh, and and have a, an openness and a willingness to for, you know to share our learnings, um, but also for the workers to share their learnings about how they experience uh, critical control uh, in implementation. So. We would like to just take a quick poll. I'm going to hand over to, to Sarah. And what uh, we're going to do is just, just ask you uh, a question. You know, what, what portion, considering this human element, what portion of critical controls at your site or organisation would you consider difficult to implement? We'll leave that up for about 30 seconds. So the options there are 20%, 40 60 or 80 So of the critical controls in your organisation, that are available to people, what percentage would you consider are difficult to implement? Very interested in, in your, your feedback. So I'll keep that up for a couple more seconds. And Sarah, when you're, when you're ready? Yep, we are almost there. Thanks, Mark. Just a right. moment. It's like watching a race. <laughs> All right, I think I'll share that now. Great, thank you. All right, so very interesting. We, we've got 20%, uh, I can see there. 20% have come up with uh, uh, difficult. And I, and I appreciate here the, the term difficult can be somewhat subjective. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk, to, talk through that shortly. 40% uh, are saying uh, we, we would consider those uh, the controls difficult. 60%, we've got uh, uh, only 9% there saying that we can not. So quite a, a, a close race between 20% and 40%. I propose we have a look at what the data is telling us. Okay. So 61%, uh, when we did a, a, a very detailed uh, analysis of over 168 serious incidents across multiple injuries or incidents, um, we found, and this is multiple industry sectors uh, between 2020 and 21, we found that 61% uh, of critical controls were, for the worker, difficult to implement. This means that they weren't fully enabled. It was, it was difficult to, for the worker to apply this in the context of the work itself. So this is the reality of what's what's happening out there for, for people. We have the controls, but, but they can be difficult to actually implement um, and, and operationalize. So that's that's a really uh, key point for us to consider here in terms of our verification. And when we're going and doing verifications, what is it that we're looking for? 49% of control failures involve intentional workarounds. And, and this is obviously related because what you know, the worker is trying to do, or the work teams are trying to do, is get work done. And if the procedures or the processes and, and resources and tools that we provide uh, are not available or difficult to implement, then workarounds are intentionally found. And if that, that continues over time, what we end up with is drift away from our procedures, away from, from those the control assurance that we anticipate or imagine is in place. So our, our observation practices and the like can really hone in and find these workarounds. But the idea is, is that ultimately we don't want, we're, not, we're not out there to, to blame the worker. Uh, we, we, we certainly want to in, encourage an openness to this conversation to understand what is it that we can do 
to help those controls become more effective uh, to and easier to implement. So we'll just introduce some brutal facts here. And, and this is this is work is done. A high risk work controls are not always fully effective or, or fully enabled. And this is really, you know, bringing that, that person component that interacts with all the other elements we talked about in the safety culture. And that local operational risk tolerance is often driven by misaligned corporate systems. This is because they're difficult to implement, they're not, they're not congruent with work that's being done. So over 28% of, of workers or supervisors have adjusted their practices to suit the local circumstances or context that they experience. And 32% of uh, control failures actually result from the routine work practices that drifted over time because of that misalignment and, and, and failure to detect, we get this drift. So we thought it would be useful to, to really overlay, overlay that, that incident data with, uh, with safety culture uh, and what we know about uh, the importance of safety culture in uh, critical control assurance. Uh, and some of you may be aware of uh, a, a research paper that we've published uh, called Driving a Positive Safety Culture. If you, you want to get hold of that, that's uh, accessible. Um, just, just ask at the end if you like. Um, but what we found in, in uh, doing this very detailed uh, analysis using our research team is that with over, you know, using uh, 562 focus groups, we had 5,000 people interviewed and, um, you know, 21 thousand surveys completed, we found some really interesting facts about, uh, about where the opportunities are for organisations to focus in on in terms of starting their, their uh, food control assurance journey. So one of them, um, you know, with, with existing systems currently in place, the quality, as we said earlier, the quality of safety procedures um, was seen as the greatest opportunity to improve how work gets done, to really address those issues that we just talked about. 51% um, uh, uh, related to, to management and safety commitment. This is, this is often perceptions of, of the workforce, how they perceive the, the management's commitment, often identified through interaction in the workplace, the enabling processes they put in place, such as training, providing the right tools, contextualizing the work to existing circumstances. Uh, and how effective they, they, they generally see in, in, um, in the interactions in the field. The internal context is effectively what's occurring inside the organization. So uh, these might be competing um, targets or, or, or goals. They can be the, the level of change that's occurring in, in the workplace um, that's, that's drawing people's attention or, or sometimes distracting them. Um, and, and how well certain, certain changes, and if you're implementing critical controls, and how well it's implemented in terms of change management. Um, and in, uh, at 40%, the willingness to report incidents and errors was considered to be one of the major opportunities. And I'm sure as many, if many of you uh, would be in the um, uh, safety professional uh, space, there's, this one in particular is quite important because if we're not getting data, or if there's no willingness to report that, that uh, where near hits and, uh, um, and the like are occurring in relation to SIP events, 
uh, it makes it very difficult for us to, to make changes to the system. Uh, the, the fifth one there um, is around employee safety performance. And this is, these are essentially the behaviors that, that the worker performs uh, in implementing and operationalizing uh, safety or the practices that, that are provided from the system. And we thought it would be just uh, worthwhile also in mentioning number, number six, uh, even though it's not, not in the top five, but the hazard awareness and control, this ability to detect the, you know, the critical risks that, that, are, that are emerging through work and, and then apply the appropriate controls uh, was, was actually, actually at 35%. So that, that was another one that's, that's important in the context of where our greatest opportunities are to improve control assurance. So we thought it would just be useful to, to I guess, wrap this, this section up with a quote from James Reason, um, which says, if we can't change the human condition, we can change the conditions in which people work. So it's interesting, just to, just to pause on, we cannot change the human condition. And what, what we're talking about here is that, you know, the human condition itself is, is what it is. That, that, we, are, we have limitations, biases, and a, and a range of different influences on us, social and environmental and the like. So what we need to be able to focus on is the conditions in which people work. So if the conditions that we provide are misaligned with, uh, or don't include this in, in the design, then our systems won't have great, a high level of assurance. Uh, so we, we also say that you can't change the conditions if you don't have a good understanding of the human condition itself. And so we're going to move into the psychology of risk uh, now. Cool. Okay, so uh, this is this is obviously the bread and butter of, of uh, what we do here at Centus. Um, we're, we're very, very much about enabling and, and empowering personal safety around and, and in, you know, giving people tools and, and models, mental models to, to work with in terms of improving their own personal safety, uh, and also in terms of uh, leadership and how to how to achieve safe uh, and productive cultures. So these, well, before we go into uh, psychology risk, it's worthwhile understanding what are the, these limitations. Uh, so we would start with cognitive limitations, and and this effectively relates to things like you know our brains just aren't well designed to detect things like slow changes. Um, so that gradual drift that we're talking about is often undetected. So I think you know, that's important for us as, as professionals, but uh, in terms of, of uh, operational teams, things like uh, you know, gradual changes like uh, degradation of systems or even um, corrosion often goes through undetected because it's, uh, you know, it, it's slow occurring. Um, the, we can also be very selective and I'm sure uh, many of you can relate to that. We, you know, we 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 uh, focus on things that are important to us, um, and filter out things that are not. Uh, so we can be very often when we're doing tasks, we can also be very task focused. So selective attention, obviously, uh, is a big one there in terms of cognitive limitations. And some of you might be aware of um, uh, some information that that comes from neuroscience about, uh, you know, the the capacity uh, in our attention for. Or that's a plus or minus uh, two on, uh, you know, we have seven units of tension, plus or minus two. And a good example of that is if uh, someone was to rattle a shopping list off to you, uh, you, you might remember approximately seven things. 
Um, but if this, these depend on a few other factors such as alertness and fatigue and what have you. So, uh, so we, what we're trying to say here is that people's attention is limited. So things that we, we want to prepare them with and uh, in terms of our planning, we need to keep that in mind as leaders. And certainly cognitive biases uh, are, are prevalent as well. There's a litany of those. Uh, skills and knowledge, uh, the, the point being here is that if someone hasn't, uh, is new to the environment and hasn't uh, experienced a particular task, they won't know perhaps what to expect. Um, but on the converse of that, once we have become acclimatised to a particular environment, we're seeing the big heavy trucks or, or, or shunting of trains or uh, high pressure or whatever it might be, we can become acclimatised to that. And, and as a result of that, um, we become habituated to, to our environment. So the question here is, do I know what risks I should be looking for in terms of skills and knowledge? So, um, and what do we do? What, what processes and systems do we have that are critical in ensuring our skills and knowledge uh, of our people in relation to good controls? Uh, alertness levels can obviously vary. So, so things like fatigue can creep in depending on the, the cognitive load of the task. So you can keep those sorts of things in mind. Uh, levels of stress in the environment or, or at a personal level. Uh, things like prescription drugs can obviously affect our uh, ability to focus uh, and make good decisions. And certainly when fatigue is in place, though the capacity to put critical controls in place uh, and the will, certainly the willingness um, diminish. What we can do um, and, and some areas that, that are particularly important around preparation is we, as operational leaders, is ensuring that there's the right attic and out of time. So our uh, demeanor around getting the task done, the, the way that we communicate uh, can lead to rushing. Um, you know, these are certainly the, the production pressures that we, we are competing against sometimes. Uh, and you know, how people can tend to become habituated and, and you know, I've been doing this for years. So, you know, it's never happened before. Um, uh, other, other things that, that are also competing for people's attention might be things like distraction in the workplace. Um, and all of these are what we class as the limitations that, that relate to the, to the human condition. So we're going to just uh, offer, offer a bit of a cheeky question here, which is, you know, this is, this is to all of us. Do we have a, a good appreciation and respect for the risks involved? And, and I, I ask this, you know, with, with an openness. Uh, quite often, um, we hear back from from some leaders, certain leaders, that they're not completely aware of, of the, the controls that that are associated within the system itself. That could be a, a point of frustration. But, but for us, how would we depict that we have a good appreciation for the risks? In our workplace, and and what are the tools that we use for that? How would how would how would we demonstrate that? How do you demonstrate it? So just a, just a, a, a pause point there. And the next one that that also relates to this, so, so knowing and having capacity is one thing. The next bit is the attitude. Is do we have helpful attitudes towards risk assessment and risk management tools? And what I mean by that is, uh, quite often we have a uh, we can have a, a particular perspective on controls. The controls are written, they're in the system, they're there, people have got the, the documents. Is that enough? Um, what do we actually want, want to be able to do in this space to help detect those workarounds, to detect uh, where there's difficulty, what have you? 
And what do are our attitudes helpful uh, in terms of risk assessments, making them uh, not necessarily enjoyable? Now, that can be that can be quite challenging, uh, but it's certainly collaborative and inclusive. So just some some key points, and and uh, you know, these are questions that you can potentially ask uh, people in your workplace as well. Are we looking? Are we looking deeply enough? Do we have the right attitudes? So, so on this piece, the reason that, that attitudes are so important here, and this, this comes from the cognitive behavioral um, psychology, if you will. Um, generally speaking, we would say, well, look, it's, it's kind of simple. But the results that we get, you know, things like our safety performance and the like, is a result of the behaviors that occur preceding it. And that's all well and good, yeah. We can, we can and I think traditional methods are, are focused heavily on behavior and trying to control behavior and, and the like. But what we would like to propose is that fund foundational to behaviors is people's attitudes, you know, um, provide the framework for, uh, and, and the, the context for these behaviors, the choices that we actually make. And effectively our attitudes, which is a combination of our thinking and feeling, are uh, directly attributed to the results we get in life in general. This can also be applied, obviously, to, to safety. So the attitudes that we have in the environment, which is often uh, associated with what we call climate, influence people's behaviors. So this can be in, at an individual level or a collective level, influence the behaviors that we, we get in the workplace, which then uh, produce the results that we get. Quite often, we only focus on those top two, um, but we would like to sort of encourage uh, a deeper thinking in terms of what are the prevailing attitudes, the requirement, if you will, for, for that are required to set up for critical control assurance you know, the, at the level that we, we want? So breaking this down a little bit further, uh, we, we thought we'd overlay this with some, some risk attitudes that uh, we often see through things like surveys or cultural, cultural surveys and the like uh, in relation to uh, critical control assurance is it's like, well, it'll be all right. It won't happen to me. So there's this sort of normalizing. I, I haven't, hasn't, you know, I haven't seen it in my my lifetime. The, the therefore the risk is not going to happen to me. So that obviously, what what sort of behaviors might then be associated with uh, that sort of attitude? Um, the the other one is that sort of overconfidence piece, which is I know what's involved and nothing's gone wrong before. So that um, you know that that sort of uh, reliance a little bit on on luck and, and previous experience and uh, the third one there is probably more related to uh operational leaders uh, and that that willingness to actually get out in the field and, and go and verify go and ask those questions as uh, sometimes those difficult questions uh, i'm too busy to go policing my my team um, and quite honestly that's probably the one that uh you know uh, might be difficult for operational leaders to go out and, 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 and do in context of other competing uh, tasks that they might have on a day-to-day. -day. So this, this really allocating the time to go out and, and have those interactions and policing there provides a fairly negative frame, doesn't it? So, you know, what sort of interactions do we actually want to have? So I'll just ask a question here. So we, we were talking quite a lot about uh, workarounds in the past and I just want to ask the question, are workarounds always a bad thing? So we mentioned that over 61% of people found uh, procedures difficult to, to implement. And as a result of the desire to, in, to get things done, 
get work done and, and for work to flow. Uh, human ingenuity comes about, we, we adapt. And are they, are they always a bad thing? And how does this relate to um, the fidelity of our critical control systems? So just, just uh, I thought it would be useful to, to tell you a story. I'm sure you've all heard about uh, man's landing on the moon. And uh, one thing that, that hasn't uh, really uh, been well, well published um, until fairly recently with, with Buzz Aldrin um, is the story that of once they had actually landed the moons, how do we get off? So there's normally a sequence that have to go through, charge up the lunar module, get out off the, 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 um, the surface of the moon and uh, get back to the challenge. So this was the Apollo, 30, Apollo 11 um, uh, mission. And they, they basically landed on the moon and it was last day, um, they're about to go and have their, their first sleep um, before they, they go back up. And uh, Buzz was about to, to, to pull up and he noticed a bit of black plastic floating around uh, in the environment, in, in, inside the module. So oh, that's interesting, that shouldn't be happening. So he, he, he plucked it out of the air and had a look at it and looked like a, a switch and he's, oh, that's interesting. So he'd gone over to the circuit breaker and found that it was the circuit breaker switch um, that had probably been knocked by maybe one of their suits or something like that, that was related to the ENG arm, or which is arm engine um, switch which was required to activate the rockets to get off the moon. Um, so he thought, well, that's, that's pretty significant. Then I called Houston and called Houston up and said, look, we've got, uh, we've got this piece of uh, plastic. It's, we're not gonna be able to arm the inners. What, what should we do? Uh, Houston said, don't worry, have a sleep. And uh, you know, in the morning, we'll, we'll have it sorted out for you. Uh, obviously, Buzz was probably a little bit disturbed by this, uh, this situation and woke up a couple of hours earlier and said, Houston, how, how are you going? And they said, we haven't got a solution for you. Um, so what, what we've got here is now a situation where there's eight hours left of, of oxygen and the need to, to get the, the lunar module off the, off the moon. So Buzz thinks about, well, how can I get the circuit breaker to be push it back in and, and, and into a position where it's going to allow the, the rockets to, to, to fire up? thought about it and obviously electrical circuit he's thought about a, a ballpoint pen said no that's that's not going to work he then found uh, another a pen a felt tip pen and he's used that to push into the the the, the, the gap and activate the or open up the, the circuit breaker which allowed them to actually fire up the rockets so effectively this is a clear example of, of a workaround uh, and in this situation, it saved the day. Um, so, so if you think about pure risk management systems, of course, NASA would have had great risk, risk management practices around uh, expected or anticipated risks, but they didn't have one for this. And effectively, a circuit breaker is, is a control in itself. So in this situation, the, the, the workaround was required and actually saved the day. So, just, just, I think it's worthwhile thinking about this. So, so we often come through in our risk practices with a, a very, well, we've, got, we've captured everything, but quite often uh, we need to be able to adjust and adapt um, and what practices can we put in place to, to make it happen. So given that, um, that's, oh, sorry, that's the, the pen. 
uh, that, that was actually used. And you can see there that the dent in the middle of the pen was, was actually uh, as a result of it being jammed into the, the circuit breaker. Um, and yeah, as mentioned, that's now, that's now in the, the uh, museum in, uh, in Houston. So I think it'd be good to, to, to just sort of close that section off with a quote, which uh, comes from the ICMM, which is behavioral and procedural controls are here to stay. Therefore, there is a need to make sure that their inherent frailty is understood. This includes an increased understanding of the social, psychological, organizational culture and culture change, as well as an appreciation for, of human error and reliance. And one thing I'd like to posit here is that uh, contemporary thinking says that human error is, is a consequence of our, the design of our systems, as opposed to the cause of, of uh, our, our events, if you will. Okay, so saying that with all these psychological, social, cultural uh, factors there that we need to consider when we're designing effective critical, critical uh, control assurance, um, there's one key area that we would uh, posit is, and according to our statistics as well that we showed earlier, it is the role of the human, uh, sorry, of the, of the leader that is probably has the greatest impact uh, on behaviors, those, those operational level or local level behaviors. So with that, we might just take a quick poll and ask you, which of the local factors do you believe most contributes to events occurring? And we've got, I will give that 30 seconds also, really interested to, to see what uh, your thoughts are here. Uh, so we've got excessive risk tolerance. So that's, that's the sort of the, the collective um, tolerance at the operational level. I've got inadequate supervision, which is, which is very much related to the uh, operational leader. Uh, tolerance of poor systems, so that's those misaligned systems that we were talking about. And then of course, uh, equipment failure. So if we give you uh, a few few minutes, a few seconds, sorry, just to um, uh, just put your, your, your vote in there on uh, which one do you think of these local factors most contributes to events occurring? Mark, yeah, so just waiting a couple of seconds more, not long. No worries, thank you. Started off with a clear winner and now it's become a race again. So. Right. Right, wonderful. Yeah. And there we go. Awesome, thank you very much there. So what we have is a fairly, uh, a fairly close tie between tolerance of poor systems and excessive risk tolerance. So that's, that's really talking a lot to um, some of those areas we're talking about there. Systems aren't well designed around that poor systems uh, piece that you know, makes it difficult for people to do what they do um, and, to, and to, to achieve the control of standards. Um, we also have excessive risk tolerance. Wonderful. Uh, and inadequate supervision is coming in at 24%. And no one has picked equipment failure, which, which certainly is a testament to uh, the journey that we've had over the last um, you know, 100 years, if you will, where equipment um, performance has certainly improved. Great. Thank you, Sarah. I propose we, we have a look at some of the data. So, the, hence the importance of this, this uh, 
um, webinar, if you will, is, is it really highlights that uh, inadequate supervision has, uh, in terms of the influence it has on critical control effectiveness, uh, is certainly the, 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 the top, very close to acceptable tolerance. That was similar to what, what people were saying in the poll. Uh, so they, these two, uh, you know, account for the greater proportion of um, local uh, local factors that are contributing to uh, control effectiveness. Tolerance of poor systems was third, uh, and you can see equipment uh, uh, maintenance of failure was was quite low down in the hierarchy. There's a few others there, which is you know procedures being outdated, complacency, um, and excessive self confidence also feature. But uh, those the ones we really want to bring attention to is the inadequate supervision and, um, and, and the effect it has on uh, in, the, in the workplace. So what we found is that through a meta-analysis meta um, in 2021 on 168 incidents, uh, showed that upstream causal factors were still significant. So we're talking here mainly about local level, which is you know, the, the operational context, um, but that that's, uh, organizational factors were significant. We don't have the time today really to go into some of those those operational of those organizational factors, but we thought it was worth noting that um, the factors at the local level were predominantly related to um, outdated procedures, complacency, lack of follow-up, provision of inadequate equipment. Um, they were the dominant, dominant uh, factors. Uh, and the inc inconsistency of leadership also came up, which was you know, super, supervision capacity and competence. So, it's their, the capacity of, of the supervisors to actually be able to monitor and, and adequately supervise the scope of work that they have and the number of work groups that they have and the like and the complexity of the work as well. Uh, so it's, it's the capacity issues as well as, as the competence that's featuring here. So the influence of the leader um, really comes down to, to some key points here. We've seen that your influence of the leader can be, have a major effect on implementation. But they also in terms of attitude, they, they set the tone and help shape the environment in which high-risk works are, are completed. Um, and particularly for, you know, in a social setting, they, they act as role models. So um, they, they effectively define what's expected uh, of the wider team and they influence attitudes and behaviours of others you know, through their words and actions. So our operational leaders have the most direct uh, influence in terms of attitudes, and the, the climate that we have at the, at the work, um, uh, the local level. So this is particularly important. Um, the quality of leadership, therefore, um, is very much uh, related to the leader's own tolerance to risk. So how so think about the, the types of leaders you have, what their preferences are, their biases, what have you, um, as they are such a key component of uh, group control. So given that, um, what we want, want to uh, provide um, the audience is, is a really an understanding of um, a, a good framework for effective safety leadership. And this framework has been, uh, from Centres, has been based on quite a lot of research to do with trans transactional uh, and transformational leadership, uh, which, are, which are two components, but, you know, transactional being heavily associated with, with uh, items such as compliance, uh, which are very important in terms of critical control assurance and, and making sure that the rigor is applied to the, the system being implemented. But also the, the transformational piece uh, really 
um, encourages people to, to bring some discretionary effort, even when things are difficult, uh, to, to raise issues, to have the psychological safety to, to, to bring suggestions, to report uh, potential errors. Um, so, so what we found is that uh, you know, both, both transactional and transformational leadership styles are particularly relevant depending on uh, what area of uh, critical control assurance we're looking at. So unfortunately, there's quite a lot of models out there that, that are not based on, on sound uh, theoretical foundations, um, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll run through uh, this particular model uh, to give you an understanding of how this might overlay in terms of critical control assurance, what we're looking for. So the first point here, uh, which, is, which is around supporting team members, uh, is making sure that uh, our team members uh, receive the right training uh, in critical risks. They understand how to identify um, what, the, what the, the why is behind um, putting the controls in place, uh, how to actually put the controls in place and ensure that they're effectively implemented and monitor, monitor those. And that uh, we have active supervision of high risk work and, and there is a process in place to verify the effectiveness of critical controls. There's, there's a number of these. There might some of them are obviously pre-task. There's a few um, during uh, and following tasks as well. Uh, so, so support is considered a, a fairly transactional piece. Uh, recognizing is also considered uh, a transactional leadership uh, capacity, um, where where we actually go out and reward and recognize team members, you know, based on the demonstration of the behaviors that that are correlated with. Um, effective safety uh, and critical control assurance. Um, so we, we, particularly when we're performing high-risk activities or choosing to stop work, the, you know, the ability for a leader to um, demonstrate um, the intelligence, of the, the, including the, the social intelligence, to raise when people are actually doing the right thing as opposed to the absence of, of, of safety uh, is a particular skill here that we, we would certainly encourage. Um, active care um, is, is, is essentially that, that, that uh, the care that a, a team member shows to other individuals, and, and that can be around the transformation piece where um, there is a genuine uh, uh, interest and, and focus on the individual and, and how they perform. And this, is, this might be how they turn up to work on a, on a given day, whether they're, they're affected by any of those limitations that we, we talked about earlier. How, just how, how they're generally going. Collaboration or sharing ownership of safety with team members uh, is uh, you know, inspiring others to, 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 to participate, which uh, is the transformational aspect. Uh, and, and through that participation, what we're doing is mobilizing discretionary effort. So it empowers people to take personal responsibility, to go that extra, extra yard, which you know, when things are difficult, to really enable those true controls and, and uh, it helps, helps them to understand um, their role as well in, in uh, safe, productive work. Uh, we highly recommend that, that uh, our leaders, uh, safety, uh, safety leadership competency is really, what is, what is your vision? Do you, or can you articulate the vision in a way that's meaningful for the people that you're, you're talking to? So if we're doing interactions in the field, um, how do we connect and recognize those behaviors that, that people are, are showing, but connect it to the vision. And that helps to mobilize again, a discretionary and a sense of belonging uh, in relation to 
how uh, their actions relate to the overall culture. Um, how inspiring people, this is not, uh, and I wanna make a point about this, it's, this is not charismatic leadership, it's not, uh, it's not necessary uh, in terms of inspiring people, uh, but having a genuineness uh, and the ability to utilize vision and connect it with what people are doing, certainly is. It's, it's a very powerful motivator and uh, is, is a, a great way to communicate and have the message received. So, so being able to articulate the vision in particular and when things are going well. Uh, role modeling um, is, as we mentioned before, from a social, social psychology perspective, people are you know, very, very much relate to um, or, 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 or sometimes align their behaviors and their attitudes to their one-up or certainly the, the leadership within the, the operational space. So role modeling is particularly important. And that's, that's not just you know, making sure we do uh, you know, what we say we're going to do, but it's, it's really having that interest Looking, looking at where the workarounds are, having that that uh, you know openness to, to collaborate and share uh, learnings, um, all of those those elements um, help uh, role model the type of culture that is conducive to control assurance. Uh, and the last one there is is around challenge, and and here uh, I just just want to caution um, myself. Uh, before I, you know, rather than rather than thinking about this as confronting, this is about uh, openly asking questions, and we love questions at, at centres. You know, like that, that's really how we get people thinking. Um, have open, asking the right questions um, that that challenge not only the knowledge and understanding of of control assurance at the at the workforce level, but also how might other things. Uh, how might things get, get improved? Um, how might we be able to adapt to the, the, the workarounds and, and make sure that our systems actually uh, are enhanced as a result of those, those learnings? So there's a, there's a series of there's, there's, uh, eight key competencies there that uh, we would um, like to share with you that um, certainly relate to uh, control assurance. Uh, just on that there, as, part, as, as far as our programs go, uh, there are a number of assessment tools that, that can actually be used, uh, uh, adopted uh, to help uh, individuals measure that um, uh, for themselves and, and therefore to focus on um, where the development areas for them are. So uh, some, some, some leadership touch points that we would, we would like to, uh, is along the practical side of things, um, some areas that, that we can have the most influence uh, firstly, is work scheduling. So before it even gets to the actual uh, execution phase, um, making sure that we're integrating our critical control assurance, uh, our, our controls, whether they it's putting work packs together with, with the permits and, and the right procedures and um, planning for the right equipment and tooling to be there and the, and the right people to be, be present. Um, and even uh, the, the, the ensuring that we have the right supervision uh, in place uh, to execute the work. Once it does actually trans transition over to uh, the task being performed or the day of the work, pre-starts are probably one of the most uh, Im impactful uh, areas that people that, that's, that operational leaders can um, really get the message across, the, the cadence that um, they want work to be performed at, you know, the, the things that are important, so whether uh, certain critical risks are involved in the tasks and what's expected, 
um, at the pre-start, that can really be one of my strongest points to, to get that message across and really turn people on and switch their, switch their brands on. Um, the, obviously, things like inductions and training uh, are, are key here as well. Um, safety meetings, so again, getting the message and, and, and ensuring that, that, there's, that there's participation from, from the workforce in these, in these meetings as well. So us turning up as, as operation leaders is particularly important, but also that we encouraging participation so a two-way dialogue um, to occur. Uh, we assume that many, many of you would have uh, both formal and informal field interactions. So they might be under a, a structured approach such as uh, observations, uh, safety observations, or, or they might be specific to uh, critical controls such as control verifications, where there's a, you know, a bit of a checklist to go through to ensure that, that uh, um, the full extent of the control is, is, is verified in field. Things like safety communications, though the cadence of, of, of putting these out as well, just to keep the, these things front of mind. So things like alerts so that there is meaning that's, that's, a, that's coming out of uh, events that, that occur in the workplace or, or near hits. They, they, um, the bulletins, notifications and posters, again, just uh, you can be useful as environmental cues to help prime people around keeping it front of mind, um, particularly as we mentioned before, these, these, uh, the risk can be normalized over time. Uh, feedback loops, um, but, uh, again, very important. So if we, we want good data to come in, uh, probably the, the, the one area where we see um, quite a lot of opportunity in general is to get that message back to people of, you know, hazard reporting is important or near hit reporting is important. And they see that through the action of, of giving feedback and closing that loop out and, and, and knowing that something's done or not done if, that's, if, that, uh, if it's not deemed to be uh, reasonable or practicable, um, but that closeout loop being essential. Uh, and we've already talked to, to reward recognition and, and uh, as a process of, of continually validating um, the behaviours that people uh, choose uh, and people's attitudes in relation to um, control um, assurance. Uh, other areas that we would also talk about um, uh, in terms of their, their importance is event notifications. And hazard, so hazard reporting is one piece of the near, what we find is that near hits, um, you know, the, the severity potential in those is quite often underrated, uh, if you will. So, you know, because there's no actual event occurs, if it's, a, if it's, if it's just a potential event, sometimes the investment to go and investigate and put, put resources into actually understand why and get those learnings um, are often sometimes at, at odds with uh, the more um, uh, injury related uh, where, where, there's, where there was no further potential, but it might be like things like tripper or what have you. They're still important, but what we find is that they're, they're probably not well balanced with uh, the likes of um, near hits around SIF potential. So making sure that we, we include those messages in our um, things like pre-starts and, and uh, toolboxes and posters. So just to, to close out the, on the ABR model, this is uh, the attitudes really uh, that leaders have, um, have a direct influence on the behaviors that, um, you know, our, our other, that others have and, and, and our teams have. Um, that attitude, uh, to productivity and risk tolerance are probably the, the, the key areas that we're um, that, are, that are most important for leaders to become aware of. You know, particularly if they they're biased and they're not aware of their, their own biases sometimes. 
So, uh, you know, really understand that, you know, perceived pressure has an influence on other people's behavior and, and, and can lead to optimizing behaviors. Um, and that failure to adequately deal with emerging issues and changes, I'm sure many of you know and have seen um, just the, the impact of one change in the environment or the context and how that is often associated with an event sequence. Um, so the ability to deal and adapt with things and changes um, uh, before the workaround uh, occurs or um, before the, the, uh, an emerging risk is, is realised. If the, if the attitudes that underpin our actions are unhelpful to, to the workforce, uh, it's going to have an impact on the goal of achieving safe work, ultimately. Um, so what we, what we can help our supervisors and, and, and frontline is to become aware of those unhelpful thinking um, and un, unhelpful feelings that they might have around things like risk assessments and reporting in particular. So we would just like to, to close on uh, some practical tips for operational leaders. Uh, and there's, uh, you know, it's, it's rare that we would use, you know, those safety leisure competencies in isolation. Uh, so they're often you know, combined in terms of uh, you know, operationalizing them in, um, in practice. So a couple of key points here is firstly to understand uh, your risk profile. So we really want our operational leaders to, to understand the risk profile that, that applies to the work that they're, they're, they're overseeing and to know their critical controls. It's not just to know the critical controls, but to be able to know when they're effective. So the way we can do that is obviously understanding the, the, the system and having a good framework for understanding critical risk management. Um, and that, that uh, there's, there's many examples of that, which uh, if you need assistance with, um, you can reach out to the likes of Myosh and, and Centus. Um, there are, you know, obviously the, in addition to that um, is really the focus, as we mentioned, the attitudes that we, we need to be able to take the time to implement these controls. So once we've, once we've designed the system, we've got, got that in place, it's, it's making sure that we, we enable our, our people and our leaders to, to implement those controls. Uh, encourage, we, 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 many of you probably heard stop work authorities, um, which, are, which are very important, of course. Uh, that people feel empowered to stop the work and um, when uh, a control is not effectively implemented. We like to just uh, offer an, a, a, an alternative to that, which is a start work authority. And, and that safety effectively is, a, is seen as a precondition to getting work done. Um, what, I, what, what an example of that might be, um, you know, in, if you're writing a JSA, if I was a supervisor, for example, um, and I've got multiple work teams and I want to go and verify a particular control in place before work starts or at a certain stage in the past, I might put a, a hold point into the, the JSA and say, look, before you start here, let me know, I need to come and, come and verify. So there's a, there's a number of ways to, to ensure um, and, and, and adapt to uh, emerging um, risks and, and to have good control assurance. Uh, the other one there is to incorporate feedback, learning, and refocus through pre-starts and other mechanisms. So while you pre-start, sometimes uh, mid-task, mid we might do a restart. If, uh, if, if there's been reporting, good reporting coming up and said, look, we found this, uh, we might then effectively restart um, the, the process again. 
in terms of continuous improvements, this is always uh, front and center to critical control assurance is, and particularly making sure that we detect those, those the drift that, that may come about because of difficult practices or, or slow changes. We really want to encourage uh, this idea, and this, this comes from uh, Silicon Valley, um, where they're you know, in the process of actually uh, you know, developing new software. They said, well, we don't want to get to the end of the process and then realize that there's a problem. We want uh, you know, those ideas or those, those issues to be raised early. We want that to happen often. And it, it's, it's going to be ugly because you know, uh, it's, it's not always nice to say, well, this is not in place or we've had a new hit or whatever it might be. It's going to be ugly, but that's okay. So it's, I think that's a really helpful frame for us to, to think about um, you know, the type of reporting culture that we envisage, that we, that we want, and, and, and then encourage people to, to, um, to live that themselves. Part of that would therefore involve uh, celebrating the good catches. So uh, quite often we, we, we look for the absence of things, you know, absence of control effectiveness or um, the absence of, of, of um, damage or, or injury. What we want to do, be able to do is identify more of the, the good stuff when it comes to it. So uh, a reporter works that a control is not effective uh, and, and ideally suggests something that would be great. Um, that's the stuff that we can, as leaders, be really rewarding and recognising uh, as it comes through. So being proactive, so learning the weak signals. Highly recommend here is, is really understanding where, where we might get variability in our work. So um, between work as, 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 as we've planned sometimes and then work as it's actually done. Um, identifying those weak, weak, system, uh, weak signals. So you know, where, where might things be ineffective? Uh, and exploring workarounds in a curious way in, in terms of understanding, well, people you know, don't often do things to, to get hurt. They're not trying to violate things. The workarounds are often occurring because of our, the design of our systems. So really understanding that provides such great value for us to, to improve uh, how we do control assurance. And then obviously taking action and addressing those gaps. Um, we also highly recommend things like, um, particularly if you're doing control assurance and, and, and to encourage that openness is uh, using uh, field verification processes that are de-identified. Um, so people can report, they feel, feel safe to do that. They're voluntary therefore, uh, and anonymous, um, so that people are, are willing to share uh, their, their lived experiences with you. And uh, the last one there is, uh, we often need a framework you know, upfront to, to control um, or to put our controls in place. But quite often in order for us to detect uh, the weak signals in our data. So when we're often looking at one event on its own, we don't see the full story. Um, to actually do some rigorous data analysis and looking at not just the events, the actuals, but quite often uh, the, the classification of near hits, because it sometimes it's convenient to not have, have to, to drill down too far in terms of investigation on those because nothing happened. And just, just looking at the fidelity of that, that, that system and what it's telling us. And then again, to feed that back in to our control assurance processes and, um, and ideally make it, make it simpler, but not, not, not just simple, but simpler perhaps, 
for people to implement controls in the workplace. So if you would like any further information about uh, the safety climate uh, surveys or uh, how you might uh, implement a critical control assurance culture uh, or processes, please feel free to, to, to reach out if you'd like to. I'll just offer, um, uh, that's great. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, if you'd like to have more information from census, um, please click on uh, yes, and we'll be happy to uh, share with you any of our insights um, that help you to, to move this very important uh, topic forward. Great. Okay, um, we up to questions now, Mark. Wonderful. Thank you, thank you, Sarah. Well, I don't have any questions just yet, but I'm just going, we're just going to wait a couple of seconds because they normally do come in. We did have a comment earlier, something to do with moon landing, but that's been removed. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> always get some interest, that one. Yeah, interesting story. Yes, okay. I have shared a link in the chat because next week is a um, census webinar as well. So that's going that on the state of safety culture in mining um, and it's an exclusive access to census's latest industry report presented by Anthony Gibbs and Dr. Amy Hawks. Um, question uh, from Chris, do you do any work within the retail space? Wonderful, thanks, Chris. Uh, yeah, look, we, we... We work across multiple industries, um, of course, uh, retail being one of them. Um, if you'd like to, to reach out to us, we'd be more than happy to, to uh, share some of those insights that uh, occur in your specific industry. Okay, and um, I had another question from Jake. What advice would you give to organisations who want to implement a positive critical control assurance culture? That's a, a great question um, and, and quite a broad question as well. Um, the foundation, I would say, for, for establishing critical control culture, firstly, is to, to consider those three areas that we talked about in terms of the, the structure of a culture. So, so that I would start with the practices and having a good framework for critical control assurance and, and how you go about identifying what your, your key risks are, um, putting the controls, the, the standards, if you will, uh, in place, um, and so following the analysis, uh, really sets the foundation for, for the culture. So knowing what it is that we're, we're actually um, going to do, how we'll evaluate it, how we'll, how we'll verify that it's effective um, are, are a couple of key areas that, that we would include in that. Um, once, once that's in place, we would highly recommend doing, you know, understanding good data. So there's a couple of other areas understanding your, your safety culture. Um, there are a range of diagnostics that are available for that and then putting in uh, targeted interventions. So targeted change interventions um, is one key area. Training people, of course, um, certainly in the, um, the enablers that we, we, we would say with uh, regards to the, the psychology and, and the leadership component. Uh, and probably the last one is, is ensuring the system actually feeds back in itself uh, is good data analysis, you know, post, uh, you know, from the reporting um, of things like near hits and the like and control effectiveness, verifications and what have you. Hope that helps. Okay, Christian, um, the, about a copy of the presentation. Yes, we send it out um, either later today or tomorrow. The event page will have a YouTube video on and a podcast and the slides so you can share that with others. 
too. And um, Robert says, do you have any thoughts on the removal of a dedicated HS manager role with the intent of empowering all to be safety conscious? That's a very interesting question. And uh, I'll be cautious to, be, to not be inflammatory here. Uh, I think that safety professionals have an absolute, and I have a bias, so I'll, I'll, I'll talk to that. Safety professionals have an absolute place in, um, certainly in uh, the techniques the, you know, the, uh, that we use to analyze critical risks. Um, there are subject matter experts. Uh, ultimately, we wanna be able to have people that are unbiased you know, to, to things like productivity or uh, other operational demands. So uh, I would say to you, uh, and it's a great question. I would say ownership of the controls once in place should really sit with the operations ultimately. That, that, but they need to be empowered and enabled to do that. Um, so I'd say that they both really have a place. You know, and I, th I think that, you know, so it's a wonderful question. I hope I've, I've answered your, your, your question there, but I think both are, are essential. Um, so Noel says, uh, any tips on managing safety with subcontractors? Well, yes, 100%. Like it would be very, uh, so understanding the complexities, I think that being a, a contractor in an, in an operational setting, um, I, would, I would probably suggest, Noel, that they are, there are, there are more complexities associated with contractors. And, and, and this is also demonstrated through the high proportion of, of quite often incidents that are related to SIF with contractors. There can be multiple systems which have an impact on um, the cognitive load of people, what they can actually retain and apply. Um, they might have to be operating in, under different systems when they go, if they're going to different sites, which can put a, put a, a level of pressure on um, the fidelity, well, whose controls are we actually putting in place? That, so the operator and the contractor can have, um, the owner, I should say, can, can both have uh, a place in that. Um, but I think understanding that um, quite often with culture, you have to be able to invest deeply in, in people. And if you have, have a transient workforce or if you have a, a highly uh, uh, mobile workforce, that investment um, can often require a bit more rigor to ensure that people know the controls are in place, that they're adequately verified, supported, and included in the design of work. So I think that there, that, that is uh, probably a few areas that I would I'd highly suggest, but if you would like more information, please reach out. Okay. I'm fairly conscious of time and there were quite a few questions, so we'll just do one more um, uh, from Noah. One, uh, what, can Mark share his thoughts on the quality and effectiveness of swims in the workforce? Yeah, that's that's such a great question um, because we, we often rely heavily on it. It's like almost like the last line of defense to be able to articulate what's coming through things like risk registers and bow ties and say these are the controls and here are the performance standards or expectations and translating that into then the swim of how we actually want to do work, I think is a is an amazing conversation to, to, to be able to have. Um, a few areas that I, that I would uh, really recommend to improve quality and effectiveness is making sure that the supervisors are involved upstream in the planning of work so they understand what's cascading down in terms of those critical risks, making sure that we have good in the planning stage, making sure we're, we're, we're pulling together the resources that they need. So that might be in the, the form of a work pack with all the controls that, that you know, maybe even a section of the risk register that, that relates to the work that's being performed. 
Um, it might be include the permit that's there, um, but also the upstream responsibilities around organising uh, equipment and tools. You know that they, they also understand their responsibility. So it goes all the way up the hierarchy. But I think ultimately, uh, in terms of you know one, one key area that I'd just like to share that I've seen quite useful when supervisors are, are, are quite spread across and they're using a swim to be able to ensure that the controls are, are, are well verified and, or in place and, and, and verified is, is to sometimes put a space in the swim to say, at this point, we're just gonna stop. We, we're just gonna recheck because quite often, you know, we do a swim and then we're off, yeah? Um, it's, it's just to have, have pause points sometimes in the swim to be able to allow people to click their thoughts, to check their environment and, uh, to, to refocus effectively. Sometimes, as mentioned, we can become quite task-focused. So I think the risk with, with, with uh, swims is, is that they can, can just become a tick and flick, as I'm sure many of you would, would agree. Um, and and how, we, how do we keep those things alive, particularly when changes occur? Okay. Well, thank you, Mark. Um, I think if anyone has uh, any other questions, your contact details are on the email that we send out later today, so they can send them through. And um, yeah, um, I've, yeah, there's a link to the webinar next week. Um, and uh, that's great. Thanks for joining us today, Mark. And um, once again, Centus is um, providing some great information for everyone. Oh, my, my, our pleasure, Sarah. And uh, thank you to everyone that's, that's joined. And uh, I hope that hope that's been of, of value to you. Thanks everyone. Bye. See you next week.